This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steveroseph.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Everyone, just a quick note before the episode, we will be dropping to a one episode every two weeks schedule for the next little while. If you want to contact us or ask us questions or just discuss what we've talked about, you can join us on our Discord. Thanks for understanding and we'll see you next time. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Yeah. Today, Steve's going to be discussing something that I think we both find very interesting and that the general public has an inkling about, but it's never really been firmed up for us. Even like us who's studied psychology pretty abundantly mm. have not come across any like clear definitions of what emotional maturity is. So I think that's going to be very useful for many listeners. So yes. Steve, take it away. Yeah. So the concept for today is emotional immaturity or the flip side of that emotional maturity. And a simple way to think about this is generally emotional unavailability. And there's a book that I will be referencing throughout this whole thing, which we both completely fell in love with this book when we read it. And I read it twice and then wrote an article on it. It was so good. It's called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. Subtitle, How to Heal from Distant, Rejecting, or Self-Involved Parents by Lindsay C. Gibson, Doctor of Psychology. So it's a great book. Highly recommend checking it out. I have a love affair with it. It's an abusive love affair where I get slapped around a bit, but I like it (laughs) because it's definitely not a walk in the park. I'm going to head that off first. Chances are, if you were raised by the boomers, you had a high chance of them being emotionally immature. It seems like it was probably the majority and because like psychological awareness and the practices back then were just not so great. And that this book will likely trigger some things from your past if you read it. Because, yeah, it's it's difficult to face. I had a friend that I recommend it to and she read it on the subway in public and she said she kept finding herself crying in public because of it. So I'd say uh, be careful with this book. Mm. Maybe read self-compassion first, but uh, we'll give you the... The broad strokes here. And also I'll say too that I'm not going to be, I'm going to speak, speak about other people a lot. So it could actually be my story, but I'm going to just pretend that they're all other people's stories. So they don't have to get too personal and out people in my life. Mm -hmm. So instead I'm just going to speak in anecdotes. Yeah. This is one of those life changing type of books. Like where you, if you read the reviews on this book, people are like, this book changed my life. It's like one of the best psychology books I've ever seen type of book. That emotional experience, is almost like a trigger warning in a sense that it's that powerful, but, uh, well, I mean, childhood is often traumatic. Yeah. It's we're powerless. And if we have these ultimately powerful people taking care of us, at least for our perspective, and they don't use that power well, then they're going to cause a lot of damage Mm. unintentionally or intentionally. Yeah. And the reason why I became so obsessed with this book was because it just resonated with so many of the clients I see throughout the years of my work. This has been one of the major themes that just comes up again and again and again. And after reading the book, it just fits everything. It, It's like putting on a pair of glasses and you didn't realize your vision was blurred the whole time. So it makes sense of a lot of these dynamics that are just so common. 
Mm. I would say my my pitch for the book was often that it is like basically condensed wisdom, however, like wisdom in a bottle or in a book form, I guess. Except the, the catch is that wisdom almost always comes from pain and insight from that pain. So I would say that's part of the deal here. You will probably be a wiser person after you read it if you actually digest what it's talking about and think about it. Yeah. But it will likely not be a walk in the park. All right. Let's uh, let's move on to it. Yeah. So what is emotional immaturity? And as you said, when we talked about this book before was it doesn't really provide a concise specific definition when you're reading through you really have mm-hmm. to it, it's a it's defining it the whole time but there's no kind of one sentence definition so what i yeah, did like yeah what i did was actually create my own definition by looking at all of the themes and then kind of organizing those themes and condensing it down to kind of a, a list of things that uh it looks like it, what it is So I defined it as emotional maturity is characterized by a fear of emotional involvement resulting in emotional distance, emotional instability, psychological inflexibility, and self-centeredness. So kind of all these themes really encompass what that is. I'm assuming we're going to go into each one? Yeah, we can go into each one. And just before I go deeper, I wrote an article on this on my website, steverosephd.com. It will be linked in the show notes. It'll be linked here. You can read the whole summary. And on there, I actually include the emotional immaturity test that uh, she lays out in the book. It's a self-assessment tool that you can do yourself to see if you yourself uh, dealt with an emotionally immature parent growing up. Oh, two announcements I think I forgot to say. Yeah. First, we should probably say what we do. I, I'm a writer, I guess, for the most part. The published, the stories have not been published yet, but my current project for myself is makeaskillcheck.com. It's a D&D focusing on 5th edition mechanics and stuff. Steve? <laughs> that was so random. But yes. We forget. We, we always forget. We're, we're really bad at this. We're really bad at introducing ourselves. And yeah. so my name is Steve Rose. I write on mental health and addiction on my site, steverosephd.com. And I do... Uh, addiction counseling uh, as well. So uh, the other thing I wanted to point out was that if you're listening to this on Spotify, I always talk about how the show notes will be there. It depends on which what time this particular episode gets published, but mm. generally Spotify does not allow the, the the formatting and the linking to work properly. So I'm currently working on having a standalone website so you can just click on the the link and it'll bring you directly to the show notes. So you don't have to like, because the formatting just all gets messed up. So I'm trying to make it simpler. So emotional immaturity test. Uh, you can find that on the article linked below in those show notes you were just referring to and do it on your own. And so let's get into those factors that I, that I summarized there. The emotional distance, emotional instability, psychological inflexibility, and self-centeredness, which are really those five factors, four factors two, three, four, <laughs> four factors <laughs> that uh, really compose the definition. Uh, so the first one, emotional distance would be uh, somebody's really holding back from developing emotional intimacy. They, they fear getting emotionally involved. Uh, they lack the ability to uh, be an emotional support for you. And things are really kind of kept superficial. So they may be very physically supportive for your needs like food, shelter, gifts, perhaps even, or, or advice. They may have those types of things, but there's benign, unemotional ways of helping. They will offer 
yeah, like you said, financial or whatever, they'll help you whatever way like that. But if you need to talk, well, don't go to them. They will not give you what you need. And and what would they generally give you in, in your perspective? From what I can tell from other people, they will shut it down. They'll change the topic. They will give you a platitude that shuts down conversation. They'll briefly touch on it or they will then shift the topic away from it without asking any follow-up questions. Uh, it just seems like they don't, it, it comes off like they don't care, but it could be that they're just uncomfortable or as the book yeah. actually put it, the takeaway I, I took away from that I liked was it's as if you are taking out your prize boa constrictor and showing it to somebody who's terrified of snakes and being yes. like, let's talk about this thing. And they're like, no, no, no get away from me. And so yes. it seems like they're just uninterested or dismissive, but it's more that they're, they're freezing up. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, she uses the term emotionally emotionally phobic to describe mm-hmm. this. And it, it really is in that that way that you are it's like you're presenting somebody with their phobia. For example, I'm not a big fan of spiders. You put a spider in front of me, I'm going to have this phobic response, which is like avoid it, get away from it. And that's really the idea in terms of an emotionally phobic type person where it really presents as emotional distance. Yeah. And before we move on from that, just think about the dynamic between a child and a parent because the parent, the parents, the one that's supposed to be giving this support and that's what society always pushes on us. Mm-hmm. But if your parents are not like that, then you as a developing person or even as an adult will continually reach out to them and say like, Hey, this is how we're supposed to be. And maybe you hope as you get older, then things will just fix itself. Like once you finally make them proud, they'll suddenly be available, but it's never going to be there. And you're just continually making them run away because you're going to be like, hey, this thing. And they're like, no, we're not talking about that. I don't want to talk about that. I'm uncomfortable with that. Uh, Basically, it's just a constant theme of people who are constantly trying to impress their parents who are emotionally distant. Some do it as as a tool. They think that saying good job will kill all motivation because then you've suddenly already got the praise that you were seeking. So you'll just stop, which is an extremely impoverished and broken way of perceiving parenting. What do you think about that approach? Yeah. So the, an, an emotionally distant or emotionally phobic parent could think they're doing you a favor and rationalize it as, well, if I give them too much praise, they're going to get comfortable and stop trying. Well, and, soft. And they're going to get soft. And no, it doesn't work. It, it's really quite counterproductive. And, and yeah, it's like saying you need to make somebody poor for them to be hungry enough to work. But it's like <laughs> some people, like we were saying, a uh, running theme is work, depending on how we define it. More broadly speaking, work is a, a thing that we all have a drive to do. We like to, to produce stuff, to make things, to express ourselves, mm-hmm. to help people. And so to, to see it so one dimensional is just wrong. Yeah. And I like what you said about the, the constant doing to try to win their, their praise that's a huge piece of what we'll get into when we talk about internalizers is it, it turns you into someone who's constantly seeking external validation, potentially. Mm, that's externalizers. It's both, actually. They, they both conform to this, I think, because they both like the, the internalizers trying to improve themselves and the externalizers. We'll, we'll get to it. But like, I think that you're it applies to both. Because like the externalizer is trying to get attention by doing a bunch of stuff and being loud and audacious. Right. It's, 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 it's kind of behavioral issues in that sense that they present as versus the internalizers. It's more fixing behaviors to win their praise. Yeah. To improve yourself, to be worthy of love. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the emotional distance. It's like holding the, the, the carrot in front of you and you keep trying to chase it, but you never actually get it. Uh, the, the genuine connection that you're, you're seeking. 
Right. But I think that's, that's why I think, well, we'll get to it again, but the, the two outcomes that she says, and I think it's a little too simplistic, frankly, because there's so many parents who are immature. And I think to say that everybody falls in these two camps is a bit reductive, but I think they both are seeking the same thing. They're both seeking to scratch the itch of their parents finally coming around, but it's just different methods. There's two major routes yeah. that she identifies. I think it, it requires a lot more research, but as it stands, that's, that's a functional start. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get into more of the internalizer versus externalizer response in a little bit. Emotional distance would be the first thing we just talked about now. The second element would be emotional instability. So this would be Mm. someone who presents as emotionally unpredictable, emotionally unreliable, or they may fluctuate between anger uh, or coldness, uh, engagement, or whatever it may be, joy. It's just you don't know what to expect. So you're Changes like the weather. Yeah, you're constantly walking on eggshells out of fear of provoking an anger response. So if you haven't ever lived through this, just think about it as uh, the person could be happy to look at any time, but then just a wrong comment or you don't know, like they could enter the room. You don't know if they're going to be just explosive and aggressive with everything. They could just be dismissive or they could be happy-go-lucky and jovial. The thing is, it's always going to keep you a little bit un- uncertain because if they can switch on a dime, then you're like, what the hell? But also because they're constantly either going to be dismissive or volatile when they are happy, go lucky and jokey, you're not, you're not ready to let your guard down because that's not the relationship you have. And you're afraid that they're going to like jump on you. But the thing is, unless you reflect their attitude, they often will get angry back at you as well because they're being jovial and you're just being a stick in the mud. Why, why can't you be fun? I'm just joking around. Come on, let's have a good time. But this is the same person that could have just been like, didn't give a shit about (laughs) downgraded that's where we're last second uh, they didn't give a shit about your life like the day before you just had a great achievement they don't care and if you talk about anything that's something they actually want to discuss because you may not agree they get angry which uh is also relative to something they said later intolerant of ambiguity and dismissive of people who don't believe the same thing yeah it's like i'm happy why can't you be happy too uh versus when you're happy and they don't feel like it, it's like well it's irrelevant so. Are you okay if we jump around with this? Because like another thing that comes to mind from that is, yeah, just the they often have this running theme of wanting to forget past wrongs. They know they did something wrong, but they don't want to acknowledge it. And I'm over it. Why can't you be is kind of a constant theme as well. Exactly. Yes, that goes right to the next point, which is psychological inflexibility or a kind of rigidity. Uh, and and that that would be not dealing with reality. You're using coping mechanisms that resist reality. That that sounds mm-hmm. a lot like what you just said. So it really fits with this next category. And and how would it's, that present usually? I mean, that one is more rigidity of ideas. And anybody that has like a parent that watches a lot of mainstream news, they will recognize this because they are constantly parroting stuff. But if you, again, if you take an interest and you try to get them to explain, okay, we started at this point where we're here right now. And you say we're going to be in disaster in uh, some amount of time in the future because of X, Y, and Z. Please, like, I'm actually interested because maybe I just am overlooking something. Can you walk me from here to there? What are the steps, like, incrementally, how we get from here to that destruction that you're, you're forewarning us about? And they often can't do it. They often don't really understand the things they're saying. It's kind of like a freshman talking about, like, a book they read or somebody who's only ever read one book on a topic. <laughs> if you talk to them about it, it's going to be very reductive, but they can't actually explain it. They'll throw around big fancy terms and and phrases that sound convincing that shut down discussion. But if you actually pull it apart, they won't fully understand what they're talking about. 
because they're not actually thinking they're just regurgitating and they don't, they don't realize it. they think they understand things, but because they've only been fed one major source of information, this again goes back to having a, a wide idea network, a nomological network, yeah. uh, to, to not have that you are convinced by things, but you don't actually understand. And without actually debating with somebody else, again, the, the John Stuart Mills thing about, you don't actually understand your own arguments unless you've fought, argued with somebody who legitimately holds the other side the problem is that they end up thinking they know everything, but they don't. And if you discuss mm-hmm. anything with them at all, poke any holes at all, it might make them feel stupid or challenged or whatever, uncomfortable, and they'll get angry. And yeah. that's that's where this rigidity comes in. Because like you'll say, okay, well, what about this idea? And they're like, what about that? And you're like, okay, well, it ties in because of this. And it's like, well, I don't know about that. I mean, it's probably from somebody that's not credible and it's probably not relevant is basically where it'll end up going often unless you can actually engage them. But that's yes. very difficult because they're so rigid. They yes. think they're right. They will not be wrong. And they, if, if you try to make them wrong, then you must be wrong for whatever reason. And they might start resorting to ad hominems. Like you are flawed. So you're wrong, yeah, but that's not attacks. how argumentation works. Yeah. 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 And I love that summary of, of this inflexibility. You're really not dealing with reality. It's just your perceived version of reality, which is held. It's caricatures. It's a world. It's like yeah. an entire country populated by straw men in their mind. Mm. Cause, or like whatever their opponent is, is just a, a series of just cutouts of the things they're arguing with. Cause like I had, like sometimes getting debates online, like I've mentioned, and it's just interesting cause they project the dumbest things on me. They like automatically, they think I'm like a far left hippie. I've never created a job in my life. I don't know what it's like. Economics is completely beyond me, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know who you think you're talking to, but that's definitely not me, but you'll continually come across that because it's often reduced down to ideology a lot of the time or like very, very simple statements. Yeah. Yeah. So this is that inflexibility and uh, it's really coming from a need for a sense of order and coherence, certainty, certainty, but it's really not coming from a very healthy way of, of gaining that certainty or or over certainty in a sense uh, where there needs to be a level of, acceptance of uncertainty. This is an attempt to really fill that with oversimplified ideas or conceptions of reality. Yeah. And that's basically kind of what this podcast is all about undoing like that. Everything is about gray. Like I've argued with people that like, yeah, two things can be bad, but one is definitely worse. If somebody backhands me, for instance, that's bad. But if somebody punches me in the face and knocks down my teeth, my teeth down my throat, that's worse. They're both bad acts though, Mm -hmm. but we shouldn't equate them either. So we need to actually have some sort of gradient there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think we really did that aspect justice. And so the final aspect of the psychological or um, emotional immaturity would be self-centeredness. And this presents as blindness to the needs of others, uh, using others or having boundary issues where there's potential emotional manipulation. And at this extreme Mm -hmm. end, it could even really be diagnosable narcissism or sociopathy, really. Though I think this, this model is a competing model. It's a more simple model. Um, it doesn't pathologize everyone making them seem sick because it's, it's actually, it doesn't deal with this traditional diagnostics at all. The, the, the DSM, um, statistical the diagnostic statistical manual is the official manual for diagnosing mm-hmm. psychological disorders. Yeah. This one is secondary to it. It's not, it's not directly interfacing with it at all. It's actually kind of a competing theory, more simplified, but I think it's more functional for average people. You mean the concept yeah, of emotional immaturity? 
Yeah. Yeah. That's what yeah. I mean. It's something we can just use in our daily life without having to actually say that person's a sociopath, that person's yeah. a narcissist. Cause we like to throw these labels around. Sometimes yeah. it's true. You can actually work it out, but yeah. Yeah. So the, the, some things are diagnosable, but we like to leave diagnostics to the professionals and not to throw around these things loosely. But the concept of emotional immaturity is something that uh, it really could be a clarifying concept in everyday life where you're not having to just diagnose everything. Yeah. But I think this last feature, self-centeredness, again, it's, it's basically about how everything revolves around them. Like uh, many yeah. developing countries, parents, and I saw this a lot in China and my other friends from like Southeast Asia, it, their parents, their parents see the kid as an extension of the parents. The child is yeah. not an individual. The child cannot make their own choices because all the child's choices reflect on the parents. It all goes back to the parent. Oh yes. And so the parent, they, you, I don't give a shit. Like I've talked about this before. I don't, as a parent that's immature, I would not give a shit about whether you are happy. I only care that you are making me look good. You're making money. I can brag about you. doesn't really matter, but I'm not going to say good job to you. I'm not going to say that like you're working hard and I appreciate what you're doing and all that stuff. I'm just going to talk about how to other people brag about how I'm, how proud I am, but I'm never going to say it to the kid because I'm just doing it for face. I'm doing it to look good around the people, to the people around me. There's a competition mm -hmm. between the parents at that point. This is also why like in China, for instance, there's this issue where the parents constantly push them to perform and do it to such a degree that the kids don't want to deal with them as they get older, especially since they insist that they get married at a certain time, they have to buy a house at a certain time. And if the parents aren't helping with that, then the kids just overlaid with stress. So some of the ones of my coworkers, they wouldn't go home to their hometown during holidays, or they would really not want to go home. And there's a thriving business where you can hire boyfriends or girlfriends to pretend to go home with you to be your boyfriend or girlfriend for the time. So your parents just lay off. Because otherwise, wow. they're going to constantly push you on people to get you married. And again, it's for their social security in the future. It's not because they want you to be happy necessarily. Sometimes they do that because they think that it'll make you happy. But most of the time, or a lot of the time, rather, it's it's because they want to brag about how their their son or daughter is getting married to this beautiful person and blah, blah, blah. That fits very well with the next topic, uh, the the four types of emotionally immature parents. Yeah, this is where I'm hazier, so, so you can yeah. take the reins on this. So I'm just going to list the four types, and then we'll continue on that theme that you're talking about, because that's one of the types. So there's the the emotional parent, the driven parent, the passive parent, and the rejecting parent. So the one that you're referring to really fits well with the driven parent. And, and this is the one that really flies under the radar because they look the most normal and well-adjusted. And on the surface, they can actually appear very helpful and giving advice and resources and, and all the rest of it. Uh, maybe even paying for your schooling or paying for your rent or buying you a car. And so it can look like a very productive helping behaviors. But again, remember the, the material uh, support versus the emotional support aspect. And where this this support is coming from is not for uh, your genuine benefit. Uh, it's for the way that you will make them appear when you succeed. Yeah, so really, the parent of a doctor. <laughs> yes, that's so. That's where it's coming from. The driven parent wants their ch child to succeed, so they don't feel embarrassed. Hmm. You see this a lot with Ivy League uh, colleges and how celebrities we've discovered recently through this documentary often are paying people to sneak their kids into these Ivy league schools through the back door or the mm -hmm. side door approach. What's the, what's the also, documentary? I think 
the back door, I guess. Was, but I think another thing we saw is that they were they're saying that like kids today are coddled because their parents won't let them have failing grades. Again, this is about the parents. The parents yelling at the teacher for giving a B minus. That's mm-hmm. about the parents. They're seeing yes. the kid like reflect badly. They can't say they have a, a straight A student. So they, they are the ones that are being narcissistic and blowing up. It's damaging to everyone involved, basically. It sucks yeah. for the teachers, too. But it's it's not about the kids being coddled. The kids are being coddled to some degree, but not really because they're not actually being supported. But, yeah, it's interesting because, like, I, I find in a situation they constantly blame that, like, schools are weak and that parents, I guess, aren't really blamed as much. Depends on who you talk to, I guess. Yeah, so that that I'm going to go talk to the teacher really comes from that parent's insecurity, not the student's of sense of injustice because they actually probably deserve a different grade. Mm-hmm. And what's it say about me? And going back to that self-centeredness that we talked about. And what this does is it extinguishes a sense of independence because it, these are often very overly involved parents or almost like a micromanaging helicopter type parents where your sense of autonomy and independence is largely being extinguished through these overhelping activities. And what's that do? It, it makes you actually feel very unmotivated, psychologically speaking. And dependent. And dependent, yes. Psychologically speaking, intrinsic motivation comes from a sense of autonomy, like that's freedom a sense that you're progressing and a sense of relatedness to others. So the overly involved parent thinks they're doing their child a service by overhelping when really what that's doing is killing their intrinsic motivation. Like a little spark of passion is starting to happen. Instead of kindling it and turning it into a roaring fire of passion, there's a little spark and then it's like, get the, get the fire extinguisher and and then just kind of extinguishing, let's just put that out. What you really want to do is this, you know, and so that's the idea here. Or it could also be fearful based too. It can make mm. them fearful to a degree because they can't. You have to make mistakes and see that you can survive to understand that you will be okay. And many parents will just constantly tell horror stories about what could possibly go wrong because they're hoping that you'll learn from what they're saying. But the thing is, most people don't learn very well from what you're saying. So as a parent, it seems like the job is more about mitigating the amount of risks they're taking, but allowing them nonetheless to take risks to possibly get hurt. Because if you constantly shelter them from any risk, then they're never going to learn anything and they're going to be a bit more fearful because if something seems any risky at all, they've they've never really had to endure much. They will shy away and be more fearful of approaching things. Yeah. Yeah. So this leads to a dynamic where you have driven parents with children who appear largely unmotivated and it's like how did that happen because parents are so successful and driven how are the kids so those lazy kids you know and then it really leads to these these stereotypical kind of attributions that the the children are just no good and and all the rest of it Uh, particularly if you're in a high society environment where the more you do the more you try to help the worse the children are getting and it's almost like this counterproductive helping where you're digging yourself deeper and now people are, are starting to talk and say, oh, did you see that? That person's kid? Oh, the, they're doing that? Oh, no. And then you catch wind that you're being gossiped about and you, you, you lean in harder and then it, it really is this downward spiral of a bad situation. Yeah. It seems like a difference between micromanaging and facilitating. Like you, yeah. d- micromanaging would be like, oh, I guess even just managing 
facilitating is like giving the situation so that the kid can explore and figure it out themselves, allowing that to happen organically. Yeah. Whereas managing is like you're forcing them to do these things and watching them and the micromanaging is watching them to make sure that they do it exactly the way that you think they should do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it really just kills motivation. And yeah. So the driven parent is, is one of the major ones. I went to that one first because it fit with what we were talking about before, but it also has just a lot to talk about in it. And the next one would be the emotional parent. And that's the, the parent that uh, there's the stormy emotional weather is always unpredictable. You never know the forecast. And in particular, if they're using substances or alcohol, it really amplifies this where they're flying off the handle. Then they're like, I'm sorry. And they're, they can, they can really be all over the place. It's emotional roller coaster. Do you find that there's a theme of people who are more emotional having problems with substances? It seems like using substances would be a way to like, if you can't handle your own emotions yourself, people often turn to substances to do that. And so I would imagine that addiction would probably correlate with emotional maturity negatively. Exactly. For sure. For sure. And it, from different angles for the emotional person where it's a stormy weather, they would be using the substances to perhaps cope with those overwhelming emotions, which could be anger or frustration versus maybe the driven person who's coping with this kind of neurotic tenseness and just maybe underlying shame or whatever. So there's different of not being enough. In not being enough. Yeah, exactly. So there's perhaps different angles that it can manifest, but uh, for sure, a hugely correlated thing. Hmm. I've heard that with some addicted parents, at least they, when they're on the substance, they're very friendly and helpful. But then when they're not, they're a complete jerk constantly, because I guess I don't know if it's withdrawal pains or just the, the weight of reality, but yeah. Have you come across this frequently? Oh, for sure. It can go either way. Some people use substances and they become aggressive and then normally they're not. They're like, like I don't know what happened to them. They just turned angry versus the other one. He's an anger drunk. Yeah. Versus the other one, there's a type of person that actually when they stop drinking, everyone around them is just go back to drinking. Whoa. You know, so there, there really is these <laughs> different responses for sure. That's not, that's probably a worse one. Cause at least you, in that case, you have people pushing you towards it. Yes. It's actually reinforced that you should continue doing this. Yeah. So it's quite hard to deal with and you really have to deal with underlying issues uh, and, and not just pull away the substance and say, deal with it because now they're just going to be a, a train wreck in their, in their everyday life. And everyone's just going to lose their job, pun, turn the, the drink again. Yeah. 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 So treating underlying issues versus just taking away the substance is a huge piece of that. And maybe we can talk more about that when we talk about addiction in the future as a concept, perhaps. Yeah. It's complicated though. What's the third type of parent? Passive parent. So this one, they can actually present as easygoing, playful, affectionate, often in good spirits. And you can actually like them and enjoy their attention quite a bit. But where it fails is when they they don't protect you when you need it. Meaning if the other parent is abusive or emotionally immature in different ways, the passive parent uh, can just let it happen. And that leads to a sense of uh, neglect or abandonment because you trusted them because you liked their attention. They were, they were good with you, but then when you needed it, they weren't there. And that, that's hugely painful. Yeah. I kind of yeah. wonder if, those parents would sometimes say, well, you know how they are. You know how that other parent is. So like, well, you, you shouldn't know how have they are. Them. Yeah. Yeah. More, yeah, that, more likely a... blaming the child being like, 
you know, you know, your father has a difficult time dealing with X, Y, and Z. You shouldn't have asked for like whatever thing, minor thing you asked for that set him off. Cause that's to be expected. It's kind that's, of, um, that's gaslighting. It's not gaslighting. Gaslighting is telling somebody they're crazy for thinking something that it's not, it's not real. This is, it's a form of brainwashing sort of, cause you're, you're blaming them for what happened and telling them that they should have known better, even though like they're not the parents and obviously an abuse. It's like for somebody saying like, like, don't make me hit you. Why'd you make me do this? That's not gaslighting. I think gaslighting has been thrown around a lot too easily because gaslighting is from a movie where he makes his wife think that she's crazy because of the lights in the front of the, the house. He's just constantly undermining what she knows to be reality. So I guess maybe you're right. Yeah, you're well, you're undermining what you know to re- be reality. If the child actually has a, a realistic version of reality in that this other parent is just not coping effectively and the child intuitively knows something's wrong, but the passive parent says, oh, you know how they are. You shouldn't have done that. It makes the child feel that they are actually wrong and they are yeah, bad. It also invalidates the, the parents, invalidates the child and yes. justifies the behavior. Yes. It invalidates the realistic version of reality that the child thought they knew. Yeah. I remember one of my professors saying that if you wanted to make somebody go psychotic very early, just violate physics in front of a baby. <laughs> if like, if you just were able to, cause the babies are constantly trying to test the world and by dropping, say a pen in front of them, they'll see like, Oh, that's how physics works. That's why they throw stuff sometimes or mm. just, they're, they're testing how things work. And, uh, it's cause we're just so adaptable at, at birth. That's kind of why we're, we're also born so unready for the world. So we can get molded for the environments, but he was basically kind of making a joke that if you could, I don't know, raise a baby in space, for instance, or even like the first couple of years, they would, their <laughs> fundamental understanding of how reality works would be like mind blowing a bunch of times. Cause they come down here, like things fall. What? Cause like they'd be constantly <laughs> floating around. Right. So it's kind of similar. Cause like your reality is not formed. And that's why I think these, these family histories kind of echo themselves. Like we, we kind of get pulled towards the pain that's familiar. And that's what we think love is oftentimes. Cause that's from our parents in this, this warps reality where that is how their love was expressed. That's now comfortable and familiar. Yeah, Actually, she, I've had some dating experiences to do with this where by being balanced, insecure, actually put them off and made them freak out because they expected you to be more volatile and blaming them and doing the things that they're familiar with by being yeah. balanced and reasonable. It actually, it, it just, they don't know how to handle it and they can, they can reject you for that reason. Yes, she actually says a really nice quote in the book, uh, something like, the people we find ourselves most attracted to are often just triggering us the most. Right. And they're saying, I think she said, if you find that if you're raised in one of those households and you have instant connection with somebody, you should actually see that as a warning sign because they may actually be damaging in the way that your parents were. Yes. Red flag, instant sparks and... uh, fast romance and all the rest of it. Be aware. Is this an old pattern that goes back to childhood? Is this me being triggered uh, and confusing it with uh, attraction and uh, something to be aware of for sure? Yeah. You can fall into the same cycles that your parents were. And the final category of parent is the rejecting parent. And so they are often withdrawn, dismissive, derogatory, uh, openly reject attention. They really seem like they don't like children in general. Yeah, the people that just got roped into being parents. Yeah, they have a wall around them, lack empathy. They can be kind of menacing uh, or aloof, perhaps, maybe even abusive physically. Yeah. I also would say that, like, I think 
these types are broad strokes. I think that they often parents don't neatly fit into them and exactly. can oscillate between them. So they can have elements of one or another, depending on what, what stage of life, how much pressure they're under. Yeah. So it's, you don't, I found that I couldn't neatly fit any of the people I know into any particular, that's why I didn't learn the types very strongly because yeah. I felt like they were just general vibes, but they, yeah. uh, I couldn't pin any single one on one person. That's why I like that this is not a diagnostic criteria because you can understand these various types, but not have to hold them too rigidly. It's, it's kind mm-hmm. of a rough guideline to be like, oh yeah, they kind of fit into that category and a bit of that category. Uh, and it really helps you make sense of the situation more so than trying to like pin down and yeah. diagnose, diagnose something. But also you can kind of see that it's, it's generally they're immature. Like I had discussions with people where I got in a disagreement with them of somebody that I was growing closer to but like after this this is the thing about relationships is you have to wait for the first fight to actually happen because then you can see how they argue and if if they're extremely stubborn and will not at all engage with the actual wrongdoings that they did it can be a, a red flag for the entire relationship unfortunately it usually takes several months for that first fight to really happen at least so like this particular instance i had said something that pissed her off and she had handled it really badly that had made me angry and she insisted that I apologize for it, which I ended up doing after clarifying exactly what I was apologizing for. And then I said that she should apologize too, because the way she handled it was not good and unproductive and that she was actually being offensive in the way she was responding to it. But after she got the apology, it was, that was it. The, why, why are we still talking about this? Let's just drop it. And it's like, uh, no, that's not how this works. We both screwed up and we both should recognize it. And so that just... It doesn't bode well for the relationship, I think, when that happens. Yeah. And this this idea brings me to the next category of various reactions someone could have if they were raised by an emotionally immature parent. And there's two general types of reactions we briefly mentioned Which we before. To. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to fit neatly into one or the other, but uh, it's just an idea. So there's an externalizing and internalizing. Do you want to elaborate since you did so earlier a little bit sure so internalizers are people that generally are trying to look inside themselves to see what's wrong what's wrong with me that my parents treat me so like what can i fix about myself that will cause them to finally treat me with the love and affection that i i I need to be a, a fully formed functioning human being and the thing is that it's not it's a problem because it will never happen. You're never going to earn their parent, your parents' affection unless they grow up. And the chances of that are very slim. So you, and you can't control it either. You can't force them to grow up. They will not. And it'll just cause more of a problem. But I think, oh, and then I'll guess I'll tell you about the other one. The second one is externalizers. Externalizers are more for seeking attention, performances, doing things that are loud and attention grabbing. Because that's how they're trying to fill that, that void that the parents didn't give them. So like doing performing or telling jokes or being like a clown, but also it expresses itself. I thought, interestingly, in asking for help. And I think we were talking about this yesterday, how asking for help, you're getting attention from that. And so this type of person, the archetype that she lays out, at least, if you offer some sort of help, they'll say, oh, no, that won't work. And then you offer another form of help. Oh, no, that won't work. And they keep shooting down every single solution that you possibly could come up with. And the reason, at least according to the book that she gives, is that they're only doing this because they want your attention. The longer they reject your, your help, the more help you're going to provide and the more attention they're getting. So they're getting, oh, they're wow. getting some slight 
fulfillment from you constantly trying to fix the problem because it shows how much you uh, care. I experience this sometimes in my conversations with people. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not too uncommon. <laughs> yes. Given my, my type of role, this, this is a common thing. So that's, that's an externalizer where it's not, you're really not taking responsibility for things versus internalizing. It's you're overly taking responsibilities for things and really blaming yourself for the way your parents are treating you. Which one would you think is better? I think we're both biased on this. Well, internalizing, I'd say, because as the book suggests, they are more inclined to personal development because they're using personal development to try to fix themselves so that their parents will come around and show them the, the love that they've always wanted. But mm -hmm. even though that's, they're doing it for the wrong purpose, that's really a futile attempt to get something that they won't ever be able to get and don't have control over, at least they're dabbling with personal development. So at least it gets them in kind of the realm of maybe stumbling upon something like this book. Yeah, like I, I would say that I'm probably more of an internalizer from these two archetypes. For and sure. I argue that that's by far the best one because like you said, you're you're improving yourself. And I think by continuing down that path, you end up coming across information that will free you somewhat from the shackles of trying to get that affection like this book, like you said, because you'll come across information that is applicable to how to grow and how to fill yourself out psychologically from the, the damage or the lack the starvation that kind of happened in your past. I think one of the concepts that comes to mind now is uh, emotional deserts. Did you want to talk about that? Um, or do you want to keep talking about the archetypes first? Uh, no, you can talk about that. So the emotional desert is kind of the concept of being, being feeling uh, alone in a crowded room. Like an emotional desert for that would be where you, nobody's actually feeling that need. You have people around you and it's just very superficial, mm -hmm. like small talk kind of conversations. Yeah. And when you express yourself on the deeper level, you, you, they just shut down. They can't handle it. And I always find it, found it odd. Cause you'd be so like, you know, I can't stand that this person's doing this. And they'd say, yeah, well that's people. And you're like, you, that you're just gonna shut this down. You can't like, I can't vent this to you. You can't just talk about how like, yeah, that's difficult. And like, we all have to deal with it sometimes, but like sometimes people suck. Like you could even something like that. Like, it seems like they can't even do that. It just seems in that situation, you end up feeling you're, you're emotionally starved so it's, it's like having a great job that pays well, but is unfulfilling. Things seem on the surface to be fine, but yeah. there's a, a utter hollowness to what's going on that you can't put your finger on. You can't explain to people and people don't really get what you're talking about. And so it's even yes. harder to get good support in a time from at least non-professionals. It's, it's most invisible, particularly when it's a driven like two driven parents with an internalizer child. It's, it's mm. super invis invisible in that sense because on the surface, everything looks great. And the internalizer may even be trying to improve themselves and getting higher education to try to impress everyone. And everything looks just so glossy on the outside. And, and that's the, the most dangerous one because it's so invisible. And, and when you try to talk about it, it's almost like you're invalidated. Like you're not allowed to complain. Everything's great. Yeah. You see all the things I buy you? Why are you complaining? Yeah spoiled child you know <laughs> oh yeah yeah and i think one of the things that i was thinking about earlier in this conversation was an expression of the uh i guess rigidity because uh, many boomers in specific grew up with a poorer family than they ended up they ended up 
being very prosperous. That generation did very well compared to the previous one, which isn't to say that they all did well, but they all seem to the majority surpassed what their parents were able to do. And so because of that, they grew up from often lack to abundance. And one expression of this can be, say, being smart enough for the child to witness the disparity between their explanations for not buying something and the lifestyle you lead. So, for instance, that could be like going to a grocery store and wanting to buy some, say, overpriced sugary cereal. So, like, say, Fruit Loops, way overpriced for what it is, it's just corn, basically. It's all purely corn. And it's really, really cheap to produce, but they sell it for like a small box for, I don't know, five to ten dollars, stupid amounts. So expensive. And yeah. And so instead of saying to the kid an emotionally mature response, which would be, uh, we can afford that. Yes, but we're not going to buy it because blah, blah, blah. Or we will buy it this one time, but we're going to have to like ration it out because it's not something we should eat because it's generally not good for us. But it's OK to have once in a while instead of saying that or anything that actually addresses it. These parents may say we can't afford it. Which if you're living in a decent house and it's like of a certain size and have nice cars and you're going to a decent school and your clothes are okay, you might begin to wonder how, how outside of our means are we living? How the hell are we able to afford this house and these clothes and that car? We can't afford cereal? What? And so the kid can freak out because they're like, how the hell? Because the parents think the kids are kind of oblivious and they're more observant, no. as they say, than they, they let on because they don't yeah. think they're thinking about money. But at the same time, you're saying we can't afford cereal and we're, we drove there in like a Corvette or whatever you're driving in. It's like, <laughs> uh, what's going on here? Are we going to have to move sometime? Like, am I going to have to like liquidate yeah. everything? Not in these terms, but. It creates an instability. Yeah. It really, it does sound like the gaslighting that we were talking about before. Your version of reality is invalidated because you're like, wait a minute, is this all a sham? <laughs> They're telling me I can't afford this. Because it's easier. Yeah. It's just an easy out. Because it's easier to say easier to say they can't afford it than to have to explain uh, the whole story of why it's unhealthy and then it leads to an argument and all the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I understand it's a little more difficult than just that, but like you you can speak to them in fully formed sentences with complete thoughts. Because if you expect so little of them that they're not going to step up and become that. You have to try to do these things and say, did you understand what I said? And then kind of engage with them a bit. And I know this takes time and patience, which is a luxury many of us don't have, but it's kind of what is required to get them to, to engage with the world as they should, as they mature. Mm, exactly. You ever heard of like reparenting or like parenting yourself? Yeah. I was just going to get to this idea in the, in the final section called uh, healing from emotionally immature parents, because I think we talked a lot about what the problem is, but maybe we can end with some actual practical strategies on how to move forward. So we're not just left with, Oh, I see that mess. I resonate with it. Well, now I don't know what to do. <laughs> problem solved. It's been labeled. It's been labeled. The DSM cures everything. No, it's not DSM uh, though. Yeah, but no, but the idea that just labeling something uh, cures it it's kind of like botanizing it if we can just label oh, all of the thing mean. yeah yeah botanizing uh mental health if botanizing? i botanizing are you talking like, like botany is that what you're referring to yeah like like how you know botany it's like the, the idea of like labeling various plants and like this is a this particular species yeah but like all biology has done that like they dissect yeah. stuff and like label it out yeah so yeah. like i, I don't yeah. know uh classification basically. mental yeah so just labeling is something is that your word or is that from somewhere else this is from Stephen Hayes, an act therapist, on his criticism toward the DSM and the idea that if we can just label everything. Interesting that he chose that one discipline, but okay. Anyway, let's move on to the, the takeaways. Yes. So we've labeled the problem. We know what it is. We have all the categories, all the concepts. 
Let's get some practical stuff. So this really good quote, uh, you actually sent me it. It's from the Twitter account, uh, Self Health 3. It, it says, you were not born to fix your parents' unhealed trauma. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. I mean, yeah, because like I, I know of people who are basically they're parenting their parents. They're in their th- early 30s and their parents are probably late 50s, early 60s. And they are constantly being like, well, I can't tell mom and dad that because if I do, then they're, they're going to react negatively or like they're going to they're going to have a problem with that or like I don't want them to react negatively. So it's like mm-hmm. the kids are suddenly managing the emotions of the parents. I mean, it may have yeah. always been that way, yes. but now it's more explicitly stated. Yes, exactly. It's letting go of that fixing mentality, particularly if you're an internalizer, this is really strong where you're really engaging in leaning into that fixing behavior. Perhaps I don't, I don't think so. I think you keep labeling things on internal internalizers too much because externalizers do the same thing. Again, they're both seeking the same thing. They're both seeking to have the love of their parents. So neither of them wants to piss off the parent. Neither of them wants to do these things. I mean, the attention seeking through bad behavior is one expression of externalizers. But I think a lot of them still do these things because the people I'm thinking of are externalizers that are saying, oh, no, no, we, we shouldn't piss off mom and dad because if we do blah, blah, blah. Or, right. It's more of an avoidance thing versus a fixing thing. Yeah. It's usually sweeping under the rug so you can have a Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus an internalizer is a lot of fixing themselves to fix them par- their parents. If I fix myself enough, it'll be some like voodoo trick where they're going to finally be fixed. This is why I don't really like this, this dichotomy because it's like a, it's gotta be more like a gradient. Cause like some people, yeah, if you focus entirely on like fix myself, fix myself and the way my parents say, like that's one approach. But like if you're more like trying to fix yourself, but you're still open to, to maybe not needing them a little bit yeah. as you grow older, that that's still technically an internalizing approach, but uh, a more healthier one. Yeah. Like extreme externalizing, yeah. Extreme externalizing would be like, I don't know, Britney Spears. Well, not anymore because apparently she's suing your dad, but yeah, it's, it's, I think, I don't know. They're very similar. I think in some ways, just the, the expression is different. Yeah. So the, the, the summary of how to heal from emotionally immature parents I've phrased in this sentence here is, is discover your healing fantasy, step out of your role self, clarify your values, set personal boundaries, uh, take an observational perspective when things get heated and engage in self care sounds like a lot, but the the first part of that is this concept of the healing fantasy. It's what we've touched on already. It's the it's idea also very that similar. Hold on, though. Like it's also extremely similar to intuitive eating. A lot of those steps just in different terminology, but it's, it's uncanny how similar they are. Wow. We'll have to talk about intuitive eating. I never made that connection, but yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the first one is, is healing fantasies. Healing which, fantasy. Yeah. What's yeah. your healing fantasy? What is it that you think will happen if you keep doing this unproductive behavior? Yeah. So I'm not going to answer that personally, but I know that healing fantasies are basically, yeah, the, the fantasy safer an internalizer would be like, you suddenly are able to fix this one minor flaw in yourself. And then suddenly everything is unlocked. The parents you always wished you had, or like the, you may have had glimpses of is fi- finally fully manifest. It's right there. Everything is hunky dory from then on. That's a fan. Yeah. That's obviously it's a fantasy for that reason. Or the performer is like, the externalizer is able to get perfect in like a, a, some sort of competition. And again, everything is suddenly fixed because that's, that's what they want. They'll have that heart to heart with their parents and everything will click. And suddenly they will have the relationship that they always dreamed of. So you have to basically let that go. It's recognizing first what it is and then letting it go. 
because they likely won't change and well, it's possible. And if they do, it won't be because of anything you've done necessarily. If anything, letting go actually takes pressure off of them and they're more likely to be more flexible and less rigid with you because they, they sense that there's no kind of attachment there or, or you're not bombarding them with emotional stimuli that they're actually quite phobic of. Yeah. It's basically, again, the hungry won't get fed. We just talked about this last episode. The hungry don't get fed in this case, as long as you need any support from them at all, they will not be normal with you. They'll treat you like something they're kind of holding at arm's length. Cause I know parents who they are very affable and sociable with other people, but with their own kids, they are cold and distant and don't engage for whatever reason. Like it's a strange dichotomy when you go over and you see the way they treat their kids and then they'll walk next door to the talk to the neighbor, same age potentially, and they'll treat them like a friend. But then with their own kids, they can't have a normal conversation. And the reason being emotional phobia, because the neighbor kid's not going to put an emotional burden on them. It's just fun and light and detached. Whereas the the, the kid actually presents uh, kind of that uh, metaphorical spider in a sense where it's like, oh no, he might present a problem where I'll have to be emotionally engaged. And so that the healing, letting go of the healing fantasy takes pressure off of you and them, but you're not doing it to take pressure off of them to fix them. Again, you're doing it for yourself and, and saying, this is a non-productive thing that I'm trying to do and I have to let go. Yeah. What's the next one? Stepping out of your role self. It's looking at what role do you play in this family dynamic are you like the the hero, the one that always swoops in and fixes things, always has the answer, the one that kind of keeps it together, the one that is like kind of the jokester, the one that's humorous, life of the party, or the one that just is uh, isolated and, and whatever. Whatever that role is in the in the family dynamic, it's not playing that role anymore. It's like the family's an actor, a bunch of actors on a stage and there's scripts and costumes. Replacing it with what though? Well, that's what, that's what I'm getting to. So you, you recognize well, what tell role me. you... Tell me now. I need to know. You're recognizing what script am I falling into? How does everyone fulfill their, their expected things? And then what do you do instead? Well, you develop your own set of personal values and you act in line with those. And often people who are in this situation haven't really clarified their values. They've been often thinking too busy thinking about other people and how am I going to help other people and fix them. And, and it's never really about themselves. So clarifying what do you actually stand for? What do you actually want? Uh, simply asking s- someone the question, what do you want? Can often be like a, a huge revelation for them because they've maybe never even been asked that question or if they have been asked it, there were strings attached. So really clarifying, what do you want? What do you stand for? What do you value? Taking an inventory of that, even perhaps through counseling or journaling or, or really uh, just thinking about it and reflecting on it, uh, discovering what those things are. And in, in those moments where you're kind of hooked in to play a role that's, you know, is non-productive and you know, it's just going to continue more of the same. It's choosing to act differently and in line with those things that you, you value. Yeah. Not, not escalating. Cause I remember a story where my friend basically said that they were 
usually they would get in shouting matches with their parents. And in this case, it was their father. And he was apparently shouting at them. And they decided, I guess, inadvertently to follow this advice by instead of rising to the level of shouting that their father was doing, they calmly restated things and stuck on point and didn't allow themselves to get emotionally roused by the uh, onslaught. And in doing so, they felt that they were now the parents, that they were dealing with basically a petulant teenager, it kind of felt like, because of how they were able to not buy into the usual dynamic. Because usually, I think I remember this one show called In Treatment. It's about a, a therapist who has... It was aired when it did for an hour per day, Monday to Friday. Monday to Thursday, he was a therapist for his clients. And then Fridays, he was in a therapy session with his own therapist. And in that, he at one point mentions how no matter how old you are, how mature you are, there's some way that your parents always seem to have a way to make you feel like a child. And I think that isn't necessarily true. It can be. But I think in an unhealthy relationship, like with with what I was telling about my friend, had they started shouting back and buying into the old, old role, as we're talking about, they would be, they would be the petulant child who's being, who's just shouting at their parents. But since they didn't, Mm -hmm. they were able to break the cycle. And so I don't know that that's inevitable because if you're able to escape these roles, I think you can probably not feel like a immature idiot kid again around your parents because your parents may end up acting in ways that make themselves look like and feel like idiot children. Yeah. And to a more practical point of how do you actually do this in the moment? How do you step back when you're emotionally hooked? And the book talks about taking the observational perspective or the emotional maturity perspective. And what this is, is viewing the dynamic uh, with curiosity and openness and, and almost like you're a researcher observing the facts of what's happening right now. Anthropologist. I, I like to say, yeah, anthropologists like Jane Goodall studying the chimpanzees. Like, oh, this one uses the tool in this way. Ah, so then he's doing this one now. Oh, he's, he's oh. shouting and he's banging on things. That's an interesting oh. take. It doesn't oh. seem relative at all, relevant at all, but there he goes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you're watching it play out like a movie in front of you, or as if you are a a researcher or whatever it is. And you, but it allows you to step back and observe it. Uh, It keeps you open. It it allows you to not take everything personally. It allows you to recognize, oh, this is just what they do. This is their thing. This is their role. And I'm going to choose. Yeah, it's not about you. And I'm going to choose to not play my old role. I'm going to choose to act differently, uh, whether it means disengagement, not talking, like just dropping a subject, whether it means actually saying something in a moment where you never would have said something. Or, I mean, it could be like shouting sometimes, like, I mean, it's not a great response, but if you're always quiet and never express yourself, shouting sometimes could be the right call because it would break the, the, the system at least. Yes. And a huge part of this healing journey is the acceptance of anger, because particularly for internalizers, anger is not expressed. It's seen as unacceptable and and therefore anger is often highly repressed. And there's kind of this cheery determination now wearing a mask of cheery determination, I say in the article. And what happens when you start taking off this mask as you start to see this kind of anger start to resurface and, and anger is healthy. It tells you that something's wrong. My needs are not being met here where it's unhealthy is when you have a bunch of repressed anger that gets bottled up 
converted into the toxic substance of resentment. And then you tend to lash out in very unproductive ways fueled by resentment. So letting out a little bit of anger over, over periods of time when it's appropriate uh, and having the courage to do that rather than just repress it actually uh, is highly productive. What are your thoughts? Uh, not don't have too many. I've said uh, quite a bit already and we're yeah. running out of time. So I think maybe just move on to the next one. Uh, that, that pretty much summarizes it. So it, the idea of personal boundaries, meaning it, it really fits with all of this. Once you see the dynamic, it's taking a step back and getting your emotional fulfillment from people who are actually healthy and, and emotionally mature. If you have those people, if not seeking those types of people out. And as we said, it'd be a little bit uncomfortable if you're not used to it in the beginning, but it's creating boundaries and not trying to get your emotional fulfillment from places where you can't get it. And also engaging in self-care. And it's simple to say that, but if you really don't believe you deserve self-care, which uh, a lot of people in this category would, would perhaps feel, I don't deserve self-care until I can be this good and and get this achievement or fix this thing. Until I fix everyone else, then I'm and I don't deserve the, the self-care. It's really recognizing that you you do uh, deserve this, and that's a self-compassionate approach. And treating yourself as if you're uh, talking to someone who you care about or someone who is sick with the flu, you wouldn't beat them up because they're down. You would talk to them in a compassionate way, and that's looking at yourself in a compassionate way. In the book, Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff, I believe we mentioned it earlier, is a really great resource to start developing this type of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I think for, I used to just recommend this emotionally immature parents, uh, that one, because I, it's just so groundbreaking. But for me, uh, especially since I, again, like I said, we, we read a lot of psych and self-dev stuff. So like the fact that this is so earth shattering is, it's a really good book. So yeah. But again, be careful with it. That's why I recommend <laughs> self-compassion first. So you can deal with these things as they come up and feel like, and, and accept the fact that feeling these things is natural because it's going to yeah. shake a lot of foundations. And uh, I recommend not reading it if you're living with your parents still, <laughs> but maybe even still, it would actually be helpful because you can actually look at it as you go. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's a ride. I'll say that much. Exactly. So there's a few other books like Self-Compassion that we can maybe list in the show notes as well. A few of them being Radical Acceptance, Tara Brock, uh, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, The Whole Brain Child by Daniel Siegel, and When the Body Says No by Gabor Mate. A huge book in this area. Often people who struggle with emotionally immature parents struggle saying no, particularly internalizing persons who want to fix the, the dynamic by repressing anger and saying yes, which turns to resentment. When you don't say no, uh, your body says no, and it starts kind of shutting down in various ways. And, and Gabor Mate talks about how this transforms into actual physical illness. And he goes through really all of the various major illnesses and diseases and connects it to this type of process where you're making yourself sick through this overdoing and lack of self-compassion. Mm. Well, I think you wrap this one up quite well, Steve. Uh, I'm going to compliment your ending here. You did a good job. I finally did it. I finally wrapped one up. For once, you uh, you wrapped one of your own presents. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you for tuning in. Uh, we hope to see you again next time. Again, share with friends. Share. Is there anybody that would like to have 
this kind of conversation in their ears or you think they would benefit from it, please push it out there because that's basically our, our form of promotion. This is this is it. So <laughs> hope marketing for now. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, really, if someone could benefit, why not share it? Uh, this conversation might be the first step to perhaps starting the book, which might be the first step to maybe more intensive work, such as uh, the workbook version of this or the counseling process. And so it's just one step in the, the direction of healing. Yep. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. Yeah. You want to make me seem like a little baby man. <laughs> I see your game. That's exactly why I want to talk about this to show how much of a baby man you are.